drop. Hey there, everybody. My name's Christian Wynn, the director of Story Fort. And you're listening to Story Fort Presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Tree Fort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this year things are looking a little different, and you'll hear more about that soon. But we're still here to tell you about all things Tree Fort. Today, we're going into the Zoom Zone with Grant Faulkner, who is a writer, the executive director of National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, the wildly popular writing effort, I guess. Every November, we'll really get into that stuff. He's also the founder, um, co-founder, I think, of uh, 100 Words, which is a story writing venture. Only 100 words are allowed, but... Yeah, we had a great conversation. They're down in the Bay Area, Larry and Grant. Um, so Larry Rosen co-hosts with me. And uh, be safe out there. We're doing well here. Um, it's hot in Boise, but uh, we're still wearing our masks and um, having some fun up in the mountains uh, in certain type of group settings where we can socially distance. But things are a little weird. We hope you're doing well on all fronts and enjoy this episode. Thanks. Welcome listeners, welcome Story Fort fans, welcome people who have been locked in their houses for four months like we've been locked in our houses for four months. Story Fort continues to rage on despite shelter in place. This week, our guest is my old friend Grant Faulkner, who is the executive director. Stop me if I'm getting any of this wrong. You're, you're doing well, Larry. It's still early. National Novel Writing wow. Month, uh, known to those in the know as NaNoWriMo. Executive director of that since 2012. Uh, founder of the Flash Fiction Collective in 2014. And co-host of the Right Minded Weekly Inspiration for Writers podcast with Brooke Warner. Uh, Grant has, you've published a ton of stuff. Uh, Fisher's A 100, 100 Word Stories collection. 2017's pep talk for writers uh which to give my own plug we discussed previously on my old podcast the grotto pod uh and you co-wrote this one i didn't know about you co-wrote brave the page uh, is that for younger writers yep teen writing guide yep okay and put a pin in that because i know i want to talk about your relationship with promoting young writers yeah um, somewhere along the ways here definitely and of course, the author of the unforgettable short story, Sleeping and Not Sleeping and Not Dreaming in 1993? That's, that's not quite the title, but that, I, I, I love that you remember that. I like it. So personal history, that was what, so I was in grad school with Grant Faulkner here many, many years ago, and we had a workshop together and you get people's stories, you know, and I would say, and both of you guys have been in workshops and been in grad school workshops. 85% of the stories you read don't really tick any buttons, don't click anything. And the ones you get, you keep. And I remember I got yours, which was sleeping and not sleeping and something else, right? It was, yep. Good good memory. I, I, I give you full credit for just remembering this story. Uh, it was, let me think if I can remember, actually. It was 
Sleeping and Not Sleeping and Waking. It was a very awkward title because yeah. it was about a lot. The, the title mirrored the, the awkwardness of the story itself. It wasn't just a random awkwardness, ask, although I had an editor try to change it. Let me ask you this. Did that story include a whole page of zeros and ones that spelled out what is love? No, you're thinking of uh, uh, when we took that novel writing course. Okay. And, and basically, which was an excuse for every single hijinks I had in, in me to avoid writing a novel and to uh-huh. just mess with our professor's mind because I, I don't know, I was just well, arrogant and uh, wanted to show off in some strange way. She was definitely messed with a bull. But you know, what's funny is so I kept, whenever I would come across someone whose story I liked in a workshop, I would ask them for a copy of it so I could keep it. And I still have, I might've tossed them recently when we were going, you know, during the course, during COVID, the first thing we did was clean out the basement and we went through all this <laughs> stuff and I found all these old- Who needs this story? forever. And I'd Google the people to see if they're still writers and you're the only one who's still a writer. Wow, I don't know what that means. Well, we're going to find out here over the yep. next 45 minutes or so. Can we interview the other people too? Can we bring them on? <laughs> Why did you give up? Where are you now? That was, you know what? That was my Are you biggest. happy you're not a writer? <laughs> that was my big get in the grotto pod that they never let me do. I wanted to interview someone who quit. Yeah. I want, I, I'd rather listen to these people than me right now. They, they I, seem much more interesting about. <laughs> I have a number of people who I'm in, in contact with who don't really write from, you know, little MFA pals that they'd quit. So if you want a quitter, I can uh, get you one, Larry. <laughs> well, this is a whole new podcast called Quitters. There's a, but there's a lot of ways. This is actually a nice segue because I'm thinking of someone I know who stopped writing, <clears throat> but and went into another career that she's very successful at, but still contributes to the world of writing by running a writing series. I'm thinking of Arlene, you know, Arlene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do uh, Porchlight. Porchlight, amazing. So she is a very successful realtor. Right. But she does a very successful reading series as well. Mm -hmm. Grant, you have not quit writing. Nope. But you've also found a ton of other ways to contribute to the world of writing besides just writing. How has being stuck in your house for four months impacted that? Huh. I've been busy, to tell you the truth. Um, it hasn't impacted it really much at all. Um, you know, my day job's executive director of NaNoWriMo, and as you mentioned, we're not just a writing event in November. We're a year-round program with a staff of 10 and 1,000 volunteers and work with 10,000 classrooms and 1,200 libraries every year. So it's a lot of work to keep that going. And so, yeah, my, that's, that consumes a lot of my life there. Um, I am writing just ma- pretty much like I've been writing forever. I wake up really early in the morning and I, I work for an hour or two. Yes, you um, do. And that's, that's what keeps me sane. That's my joy. Um, and so most, most mornings I've been able to do that. I'd say, you know, it's impacted me in the sense that the, the you know, of course, the live events um, are canceled. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to AWP. I didn't, you know, I haven't done a bunch of stuff. I've done some of the Zoom readings, which are, you know, I don't know. They have their place, um, but they, they have their challenges, too. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of the writing world is adopting to the, this whole kind of virtual connection and still feeling it out. Well, I know that. I know just from, from, you know, I talked to Christian over there a lot, and I know he's spent a lot of the last four months trying to figure out how to make his event, which is all live, work in this setting. 
I know NaNoWriMo has a big community element and I know there's a lot of meetups too. Have, how much of the last four months have you guys spent figuring out how to wedge that into this square hole? Yeah, it's been amazing. You know, initially when this all came down, the lockdown happened, we were getting flooded with people who wanted to write. And we did this whole special program, Stay Home Rimo, and just had a ton of signups. And then we did our, our Camp NaNoWriMo in April, which is a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. And again, we had a record turnout. And, it, you know, I mean, which in some ways is predictable. A lot of people are sitting at home. And it's a great time. If you give up that hour of commuting every day, why not turn it into novel writing? Yeah. Um, looking at looking at you, Larry. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was a good it was a good time, I think, for people to write. At the same time, you know, on the other hand, people some people were losing their jobs and full of anxiety, and the, the world was crashing. You know, and and I think in those situations where you're genuinely feeling a crisis or a sense of trauma, it's super hard to write. Um, but, but NaNoWriMo itself, you know, we are strangely designed for exactly this moment. Um, like we have, uh, even though we have all these in-person components, we can, we can bring them online we have this very vibrant community online and, and that community, you know, spans the globe, but especially the United States. So people were looking at to us, not only as a place to write, but as a place to gather with the community. What does that look like, I guess? Because I've actually never been brave enough, maybe this year after talking to you, to hop into the NaNoWriMo. I'll sign you up today after the, after okay. the call here. Yeah. Yes. Um, but what does it look like, like when you bring that community online? Like what kind of opportunities are there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of different platforms, but we have like our forums on our website. In, in the month of November, we get literally a million posts. I mean, I think it might be the most active discussion of writing on the planet. I don't know if that's for sure, but, but and people, they don't stop in November now that we've extended our programs to support people year round. Uh, they show up and gather there. And then we have on our, our website, we have a more intimate, we have writing groups. So people, you and I, the three of us could form a writing group and we can could invite our friends and have, you know, 10 or 12 people gather there. And so a lot of people have writing groups and that, that's where they're doing, um, you know, more personal discussion, getting more feedback on their stories. Um, and, but then we have, you know, we have these uh, thousand volunteers across the country and they're the ones who organize the in-person writing events. And so right now we're, we're, we are discussing ways that we are going to hopefully support them this fall, but we really don't know what this fall is going to look like. But that's all to say, though, is that, you know, our our community is so online oriented uh, to begin with, you know, uh, online communities in their DNA. And so my guess is that our municipal liaisons, as we call them, will be organizing their write-ins uh, virtually. And and even in the writing cabins or the writing groups on our website, uh, a lot of people are, 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 because people, you know, it was fascinating because people become, Zoom has become so mainstream and now people are so used to gathering that way is that people are setting up their own writing gatherings online. Um, and it's been fascinating to watch uh, just our community. They, they just started doing that. And so we're going to look for more and more ways to support that. It's interesting because what you've been saying is that the challenge for you guys isn't we have to change what we do, but it does seem like the challenge is people might be depending on you more actually than they were before. Absolutely. I think so. Uh, and, and that honestly, we're, I mean, many, many people aren't set up for this. Many organizations aren't set up for this kind of online component where people can, 
can gather just like they've always gathered. You know, they can set a goal, set a deadline, set a word count goal throughout the year, show up, show up for our events, find community, you know, and, and, you know, instead of baking sourdough bread one month, write their novel, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe a quick like origin story. Cause I don't, I mean, some of our listeners, worldwide listeners um, will perhaps not be familiar so much with uh, what uh, NaNoWriMo is or when it started and all that. I'd be curious just to kind of get a baseline idea. Yeah, thanks for asking that because so so often I go way down, way, way away from that and just assume that everybody knows about it. But in, it was, NaNoWriMo was founded accidentally in 1999 when Chris Beatty, he basically woke up one day, wanted to write a novel. Uh, he'd never taken any writing classes. I don't think he'd really read any how to write books. He was just an avid, passionate reader and said, I wanted to write a novel. And he was a DIY sort of guy. And he pulled out some of the more slender volumes of novels from his bookcase and estimated that most of them were around 50,000 words. So think uh, Catcher in the Rye, novels like that. And, you know, he did some very complicated math and figured out that if you divided 50,000 by 30, you got 1,667 <laughs> words per day and, and that that was doable, you know, so you could write a novel in a month. And Chris is a very community-oriented guy. And so he invited uh, 20 of his friends to join him. And they essentially met in cafes after work every day and wrote together. And, and this, you know, everything, what amazes me is everything they did in that first month is, and Chris wasn't intending to found a movement or a phenomena or an organization, but everything they did, we do now. So they laid the blueprint for it. And that meet that community around writing and the community, it was about encouraging each other. So it's a, we're a very welcoming, fun organization, whimsical on our, by premise, you know, so it's not about critiquing people's writing or competing about, you know, who's going to get published first or, you know, maintain a certain status. So they met and they did all these writing games. Like they would uh, challenge each other. They do uh, what they call word sprints. And we still do these where it'd be like, um, you know, a prompt and, and then you'd write as fast as you could for five or 10 minutes, you know, to kind of, um, exercise that that inner editor to purge your inner editor and just write and get the words on the page and so whoever whoever wrote the most words in that five or ten minute you know game competition would get like a latte everyone would chip in and and then after they had uh you know uh consumed all these uh, caffeinated beverages they would also do another challenge where no one could go to the bathroom until they had written, you know, a thousand words. And, and that's a wonderful way to, to, to get out any writing. If you really need to get something done is just drink a lot of beverages and then give yourself that challenge. It works great when you're over 50 too. <laughs> yeah. You need, I got to even go faster. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, and then, you know, they decided it was fun and meaningful and they, so they decided to do it the next year. And those 20 people told some friends and 150 people showed up same thing the year after and that was kind of when the internet was becoming a little bit more accessible to people who didn't you know code sites but they got a website and 5,000 people showed up and then now we have uh, 300,000 people plus show up every year for NaNoWriMo. Wow. How many, how many people who do NaNoWriMo do you have a sense for this think that they're going to write a publishable book? I don't really know. I mean, I think what's interesting about NaNoWriMo is uh, the low barrier to entry. You know, we, we've, we've had plenty of novelists, like great novelists, best-selling novelists come through that. NaNoWriMo. 
But we've also had people who like like to show up with the same spirit that Chris and his friends did in 1999. They just want to write a novel for the fun of it, and they just want to do it with friends. And I think that's what makes NaNoWriMo special and why it makes it really welcoming and inclusive. Because like, like I said earlier, so many writing communities are really about competition, and they're really about status. And NaNoWriMo is not like that. I mean, you have to experience it, but it's so purely about encouragement and the joy of writing. And I think that that's just a rare thing is to, to because like we get a lot of pressure actually, like people, people, a lot of people think to write a novel, there's no value in it unless you publish it and earn money. You know, all of us as writers have experienced this, right? We've had some, some family friend who's questioned our whole endeavor because <laughs> yeah. it's not about making money and that we're not developing products from our writing necessarily. And so, you know, NaNoWriMo doesn't exist in that spirit. It's kind of like, I mean, we have plenty of people show up who, who do have that ambition and that's great. And mm-hmm. we love when we have those success stories, but we also want to support those people who, who just want to show up and be creative. Chris had a question earlier that I could not answer. And the question was, do you write a novel every November? I do. Yep. Wow. I, I, I sometimes, um, depending on if I have a, a, a book due or something, I'll work on that book in terms of revising it. So I've started to do that just out of necessity. But mm-hmm. I try to have a new project. Um, and it's been great. I mean, I, I do have a lot of novels sitting around that I thought, you know, that need, need attention or that I want to give attention. But, you know, actually one thing that it does is like if you do it every year and it's only 30 days, but Mm -hmm. it's a great way to test a novel idea. So you, you work on it in 30 days and you, you'll know whether you want to come back to that novel and finish it and revise it. Um, (laughs) And so the ones that I haven't come back to, I probably haven't come back to them for a reason and I probably should just forget them. (laughs) <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I thought it was maybe in your contract um, as the executive yeah, director. It's not a contract, but it would be really weird if I didn't participate, you know, yeah. because I'm literally out there preaching about it. Um, and I feel like if I, you know, if I don't live up to my words, then why do I expect other people to? Well, and I feel like over the last few years, and, and this is based solely on things you post on social media, mm-hmm. that you've developed an awareness of how NaNoWriMo can benefit young writers. Mm-hmm. And I think it might've started with your own kids doing it or had something yeah. to do with it. Explain a little bit more about how you came upon that and where it's taking you, this, this, this awareness. Yeah. Well, we've always had a young writers, well, not always, but we've had a young writers program since 2006. And the way that was developed is a lot of teachers were doing, were writing novels and then they saw the value in it and they brought it to the classroom and then they asked us to develop a program and we did. And so we have this whole program, you know, with Common Core Aligned Curriculum and workbooks for different grade levels and uh, this fantastic website that um, we built just for K through 12 students. And I think what's interesting about it for me, and I thought this even before my kids did it, was the way that we learn writing generally in schools is in a very forbidding and unwelcoming way. You know, it's all about the mechanics of writing. Uh, mm-hmm. Teachers, you know, people are have creativity scars because of teachers' red marks. Um, you, you just don't even meet many people in life who say they, you know, like writing. A lot of people hate writing. And so yeah. I, I think like what NaNoWriMo does, uh, why like kind of the pedagogy of NaNoWriMo works is because we start with the joy of writing. And 
you know, I always say the best way to learn anything is through your passions and, and, and by having fun with it. And so kids get this amazing assignment. Many of them are kicking and screaming at the beginning of the month, but they get to spend a whole month writing whatever they want to. They get to just dive into their imaginations and, and they get to choose the topic of what they want to write. Like that is really rare in school. And so I yeah. think that's, a, that's why it works is the kids have agency. They get to choose what they want to write and they get to write it like they wanted to write it. And they learn a lot as a result. Yeah, I was going to say I worked tutoring a couple of kids um, at a school here in Boise that they were doing <clears throat> doing it. And it's, it's a bit of um, a modified version. They were doing a shorter version. Um, what's Is that part of your program or is that just what they added in at the school? Good distinction. Um, yeah, with our Young Writers program, uh, kids can set their own word count goal. So it's not necessarily the 50,000 words that adults uh, have to write. So, you know, if you're a, a third grader, you know, your teacher will likely work with you to make a good monthly goal. And, and, and kids, like there might be a classroom where kids have a whole variety of goals depending on their abilities and their ambitions. So, yeah. But, you know, it's like NaNoWriMo, it's good to have a stretch goal. It's good to go further than you think you could and test yourself. Um, and and kid, kids love that. I mean, like at the, so many of the schools, I, I, teachers will tell me that their kids, their, their students are talking about their novels on the playground and wow. they're comparing word count goals. Like that's the, it's like friendly competition, you know, they'll be really proud of themselves when they hit a thousand words or 2000 words. And I'm always charmed because so many of the kids after doing NaNoWriMo, when they get assigned an academic paper or a research paper, they're like, oh, that's easy. I've already written a novel. I can really? write a 10-page paper. Wow. Yeah, they've already written a novel. You know, like that's the thing. If, they, if, you, if you push the boundaries higher, it makes, it makes all those other things seem easier. I always felt like growing up that the writing fiction or writing anything creative was so easy, but trying to write an essay was so hard. Yeah. It's gotten easier now that I'm old, but they seemed like two different muscles yeah, I mean, they, and they probably are, but I think the, a lot of these kids are looking at it just from from a, a word count, page count kind of thing. So, you know, if you've written a 30 or 50 page novel and then you get oh, yeah, yeah, assigned yeah. a six or eight page research paper, it just seems easy by comparison. I can see and, that. That's yeah. Good. That used to drive me crazy when I taught high school and the first question would be, how long does it have to be? Right. Everybody asks that. Like that's all kids care about really. I know. And then, but it's so funny for us because for, I mean, for, it always seems like for writers, especially if you've done uh, journalism, you're always trying to keep it shorter. Right. You're trying to cut it down. Yeah, I it, guess we can get into the little pivot point too, because you've run this, this 100 word story. Uh, we can wait for a minute. Nice. I'd like to ask about like how you landed, because you weren't in on the founding of NaNoWriMo, but how did, how did you come to this job you're in now? Yeah, I, uh, Chris Beatty was an acquaintance of mine. Uh, my, a good friend of mine was, was and is a good friend of his. And it was really random. I mean, one day I, I worked uh, at the National Writing Project, which is a nonprofit in Berkeley just down the street. And I basically just wanted to join an arts organization's board for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one was just to learn more about nonprofit management and how nonprofits worked. Um, and I sent Chris just a really random email one morning, like I was having jobs, dissatisfaction, reached out to him. I want to join a board and he responded and we got together for lunch and he, you know, recruited me for his board, which I wasn't even looking for or dreaming about. Mm. And then when I joined, uh, he told me he was stepping down 
And he encouraged me to apply for the job, which again, I had no <laughs> real thought about being an executive director anywhere. Uh, so he convinced me to do it. And uh, yeah, it's been great. It's been, I've learned more on this job than any job in my life. You know, it's been very gratifying on a number of levels. Any, any worry about burnout? Because I know it takes you a million hours every week. It does. It's, it's, yeah, it's tough being uh, an executive director of any nonprofit. It's, uh, it's burnout's definitely, um, yeah, a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there's also a lot to charge me up, you know? I mean, it's, it's pretty, yeah. I feel when you said that, um, I can't remember if this was before we got on or during the podcast, but just, you know, the fact that I'm working in writing, I, I, there are so few jobs for people to work in writing, uh, especially outside of working as a professor. And so I feel, you know, such gratitude that I, that I actually have a home, you know, a job in my passion within my passion. You know? I do have to ask this question and it's a throwback grotto pod question. Then we'll go to hundred word story, but we used to always debate over whether for writers, especially fiction writers, having a job in writing would benefit your writing, inspire you to write, or if it was preferable to have a job that had nothing to do with writing. So when you sat down to write, you were using a different part of your brain. How do you find yeah. it? I don't know. I think either works really. I, I, at least for me, I don't, I don't think I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, a job's a job in the end, you know, uh, you know, I, I show up in an office place and do very officey things for a lot of my jobs. So I wouldn't, I, I would be writing the same amount, whether I was working as a waiter, which I used to do. And I used to think working as a waiter was great. I mean, the great thing about that was I could wait tables at night and I would meet a, an assortment of wild people. Um, <laughs> but what's that? It's an amen. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, waiting tables was a great job. I, I don't know though, because I, you know, my writing has been continuous. I've never had, I don't think I seek or get all that much um, inspiration from my work as it relates to my actual writing. It's just nice to have them, you know, be together and to work in the field of my passion. You've never had a fallow period in the last 25 years. You too, Chris, you guys have been writing the whole time. Well, I, you know, when I first moved to Boise, I, when I ran in this vintage clothing and furniture store. It's when I opened up <clears throat> um, this, this store. And, and that was one of the reasons I went and sought out the MFA program here was that I was kind of, I wouldn't call it totally fallow, but it was kind of a two or three year period where I was, wasn't doing as much. So otherwise I've been pretty concerned. And Grant, you sit, you sit down every morning at five o'clock in the morning. And Pretty pay. much. Yeah, I, I haven't had a fallow period either. I had a, a, a long period in my 30s, uh, six or seven years, where I had some really bad repetitive stress injury, carpal tunnel stuff, and I could barely write. And so it was kind of my lost decade of writing. But it wasn't necessarily fallow. It was physical. Hmm. Let's segue. Let's do a hard right turn now. Hard right. Because I know Christian has wanted to get to this and talk about 100-word story. We were talking on the phone last night, and this man who's right now above you on my computer screen is fascinated with this idea and somewhat, I think, bewildered by the idea of 100-word stories. I want to <laughs> so, hear about the bewilder. Well, both, but the bewilderment. Yeah. But we also want yeah. – yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, well, I, mean, I, I have my – we, well, here in Boise, Idaho, we have the Boise Weekly, which is kind of our alternative weekly. And they, for pushing 20 years now, I've been doing Fiction 101, um, which I don't know if that was their idea in the first place, but uh, the 101-word story. So it's basically the, the same thing as 100-word story. But I guess I've never, I've entered 
I've never placed. <laughs> I feel like I, I <laughs> yeah, but, write a lot of poetry. Um, so I, I write a lot of prose poetry. Uh, and I, I think sometimes my ideas become a little bit more abstract than a story kind of often wants to be. I've written stuff, but no one else has thought so yet in that whole community. But I just find it's difficult to tell a full story, be artful and not just too um, pedestrian in the way it's going about its arc of story. But I don't know what you write out of them. Uh, we're at a handful now that doing research for this podcast, but tell us what's up with the hundred word story. They're fun. Yeah. They're puzzles. Our puzzles that you get to piece together. I feel like they are. I always think that they're Rubik's cubes. Essentially you move in order to get it to exactly 100 words. And, and I'll just pause here to say you should go from 101 words to 100. I think that's where you're, you're lacking. It's that extra word. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really more of an editing process than a writing process. And when, when Larry mentioned the whole journalistic framework where you're really paring things down and trying to get things as sparse and short as possible, we're not really taught that in school, like how to write succinctly. Generally, like from, from your education from kindergarten through your PhD program, if you go that far, it's all about writing more. And so people are like padding their writing and seeking extra words, whether it's just kind of showing off their writerly muscles or trying to show off the, you know, the jargon or the academic speak. So I think a hundred word stories, I mean, that's the fascinating thing is they're about the essence of a story. And, um, it's, it's tough. It's definitely tough. I think like a uh, hundred word story magazine, which started, we started in 2011, we get a lot of submissions that are clearly first drafts. And I think a lot of people think, oh, it's really easy to write these. And it is easy to write a hundred words, but it's hard to write a good hundred words. And so, but to your point, Christian, is that um, most of the ones we publish do noticeably have a beginning, middle and end, which ah. I find fascinating. <laughs> It's not to say that there aren't pieces that are more prose poemy, and and a lot of mine are too, and I think that's fine. Um, the I the the one that's one of the reasons I actually like hundred word stories is they blur that boundary between prose poems and stories. I I find that they allow me to be more of a poet than longer pieces do, and that's because you're you're writing in some ways more like a poem. You're 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 writing with what's left out. Uh, you're not trying to be comprehensive. You're you're hinting with your sentences and your words, and you're and you're really writing with the white space and the gaps all around the story. So um, maybe your stories, uh, maybe you just got to have find the right place for them, uh, places yeah. that will accept you know less. Yeah. They they don't have to be narrative. Just just cut a word and send it to hundred word story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Well, I've sat in and judged um, the weekly contest a number of times too it's been it is interesting to be behind the curtain kind of seeing what does come in um and it's still not rescued i just i haven't been able to enter every year maybe that's why i haven't been published there yet but i did just recently enter the because my of my students the nyc midnight um folks you know them yeah probably i do yeah they seem more like but they look i i didn't i Really miss going to the second round. I don't know. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just, maybe I'm feeling down on myself about these shorties. I think, yeah. I, uh, don't worry about what these. It sounds like you've submitted to two places. So <laughs> I, I, I would ex- poems too in that regard. And in my one of my books, um, I have a number of micro pieces. So it's not like I feel. I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I don't want too bad. But <laughs> yeah. 
they are challenges. Not for everybody. When we launched Hundred Word Story, uh, I reached out to a bunch of writers who I knew, and we've approached a bunch of very well recognized published authors. And they, I've had several of them say, "I can't do this," you know. And that, and actually, I, I believe that they could do it. Um, I just think they have to rewire their brain a little bit and practice. Um, writing hundred word stories because for a long time when I first tried them, I would, I would get a story down to like 150 words and I'd be like, that's it. It can't go any shorter. And the guy who inspired me to do all this, um, he'd written a book of hundred word stories and he said, no, you've got to get them down to a hundred. There's no cheating. And that's part of, you know, that's part of the premise. It's like golf. You can't cheat. So, um, but getting the stories down to a hundred words, the more I practiced that, the more I realized that I was making them better by cutting. Mm. And it was this kind of different, you know, different type of creativity, um, that I've actually really benefited from. Um, so yeah, keep two things, keep practicing. Yeah. Larry. First, you can cheat at golf. Second. <laughs> if you're Larry Rosen. <laughs> you're a lot of people I know. <laughs> or Donald Trump. <laughs> right. King, King Jong-il. Um, you know, what, what? you were writing full-length padded or non-padded stories for a long time. What sparked your interest in shorter fiction and what made, I mean, you've really found, I mean, you've written a whole book of 100-word stories. What made that your specialty? Yeah, it, you know, it was random. I literally, uh, the guy that inspired this is named Paul Strom. He's the father of one of my best friends, and he wrote a 100-word story collection, and he had had several of them published in a magazine, and one night on Facebook, I just saw a link to them, clicked on it, read them, and started doing them myself. Uh, and this was during a period where I was had been working on this very long and doomed novel, and the 100-word stories, like, they were a great break. And they gave me this great sense of satisfaction that I could write them and complete them and submit them for publish, pub, yeah. you know, publishing places and they could be published. And, you know, I, I gradually became more and more addicted to them uh, and wrote more and more of them. But they were just, I mean, they still are. Like, like between projects, it's great to just start or go back to some of the short stuff. Uh, they just fill in the gaps and they provide ni- nice breaks for the longer work. Because, you know, if you're working on a novel or, you know, some of the long nonfiction books I'm working on, those can take years. Yeah. And uh, it's good yeah. just to kind of freshen up and actually be published is, you know, provide some creative juice too. I think it's interesting. Just, um, I just that you had been published in Revolver, which I don't think they're around anymore, but they were an online, at least I'm yeah. oh, that's they, too bad. Well, maybe they are, but I just couldn't find them. I don't know, but they had a pretty big presence on Facebook a few years ago. And I did, publish a 300 word story in there that was their limits i feel like that's for me just personally it's a little bit larger window of time but i think i end up becoming too stilted with all that editing you're talking about mm-hmm. um so i mean that becomes more cryptic sometimes for my process so maybe that's something you found your way around because i've noticed in ones i read of yours there's still some kind of luxurious prose here that breaks up the really tight like like fragments almost so I don't know if that's something you do intentionally. I'm sure it is, but maybe. Speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't even know how. And I mean, I, I probably have my technic, techniques and tactics that I've just developed without thinking about them too much. Um, I was going to say when you were saying that, you know, you're I mean, I, I do think that some writers are just better in certain forms and at certain lengths. Like, you know, like Raymond Carver was never able to write a novel. I don't know how hard he tried, but yeah. Alice Monroe, I don't know how hard she tried, but she pretty much only published short stories. 
And um, I think some novelists have a really tough time with the short form. So I think there is something about some of our brains is that we might be best at a certain distance, just like runners are best at the mile and not the marathon. You think you found that spot? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do love the short stuff. And the short stuff has uh, really influenced my long stuff. I, I really write novels now with a, what I call a flash aesthetic. Uh, it's, it's, they're more elliptical, more, uh, about like short little snapshots of prose that, that connect to each other. Um, yeah, they're, they're more like little prose poems. They always seem to, flash fiction to me always seems more like, um, songwriting. Mm -hmm. It seems like songwriting. And my favorite kinds of songs are songs where they take maybe a two minute period in someone's life and make Mm -hmm. that whole song. And I feel like with flash fiction, which I've tried and have never been brave enough to submit to you or anyone else. <laughs> um, the best ones seem to work like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they are, they are, um, I, they're more akin to poems for me in a lot of ways than they are to, to longer short stories or, or other types of fiction. You know, I think they're an interesting blend of the two. Um, yeah. What's funny to me is listening to them because um until COVID, Grant was hosting quite a few uh, regular flash fiction readings in San Francisco, and I would go to them, and the audience response always cr- cracked me up because it's different than going to a reading where someone's either reading from a novel or someone's reading a, a big short story. They're real deep into the story, but it's only 100 words long, so they sort of get kicked out of it at the end. Mm-hmm. There's a different sort of audience response than you get from regular readings. Not regular. It's not irregular, but from longer readings. Right. I like it personally, uh, just because uh, for long, the longer stuff, I can't, my attention span is just not good. My listening abilities, it might be a character flaw, but I never make it from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. I'm always daydreaming in there. But do, you uh, notice when you're, do you notice that there's a little pause? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, it's over. <laughs> yeah. It can be different. I mean, anything can be that because people can't see where it ends. But uh, yeah, it, they definitely have that element, you know, because like Chris, Christian was saying, you know, it could be 100 words, could be 800 words. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely do different stories. You had a few, and it's funny because you, I remember I was at one where someone was reading something that was much longer than 100 words. Mm-hmm. It was probably 300 words, but it seemed like it was 10,000 words. Yeah, exactly. I used to hearing 100 words. When is this ending? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do actually we've, over the last few years um, with StoryForge, we've done kind of a, you know, maybe a mashup of what NaNoWriMo is and also what uh, like the 100 Word Story is. We've done like a collaboration with the Idaho Horror Film Festival. So we do like spooky stories and it's probably like three prompts and it's a timed event. So you got to get everything done in like 20 minutes or something like that. I mean, like maybe it's a little bit longer, but we have a word limit of 300 or so. Um, that's been really fun. And do you guys do those kind of like live events in normal times or maybe online now where it's like through a hundred word story, you're like, you have to write it fast and then everybody reads their stuff or something like that. Or Yeah, I haven't, you know, I would love to, I, I, I just, I haven't had the, the energy or the time to do more of that stuff um, sure. because I, because it does lend itself more to real time writing. I, I do that when I teach it, you know, like people will write in the class and, and that's, what's great about it to teach uh, at that length is that people can write complete short stories and share them in class and get feedback. Um, but no, I haven't, I, you know, our events, we, we talked about um, integrating like real time writing and we just, you know, all of us are, are 
crazily busy people. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to add even that extra layer to things. No pressure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great idea. I'd love to do more of that. That could be something we could do here at StoryCorps yeah. when you come to StoryCorps when yeah. it happens again. So. <laughs> I'm totally game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another pivot. Good drinking game. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Larry's done some of that during StoryCorps. It's really perfect for StoryCorps, yeah. Um, another pivot, because I wanted to talk about um, we're actually getting me about 20 minutes left. And I wanted to talk about your evolution as a teacher of writing through books about writing. Mm-hmm. In, in specific, I want to talk about pep talks, uh, which you published in 2017. I interviewed you back then when it had just come out mm-hmm. and just great kind of interview, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> and I know you interviewed Bridget today. She excited oh, yeah. me afterwards. I just was on with Grant. Um, tell me a little bit about, how you came to write that, tell me again, how you came to write that book, mm-hmm. how you pivoted to where, okay, now I'm going to write a how-to book or it's not really a straight how-to book, but an inspirational book. Yeah. How, I, it's, how it's performed. I love writing about writing. I love writing about the creative process. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of my religion and I love thinking about it. Um, and that then we're living in this age with all this great brain neuroscience research and studies that can tell us like exactly what works and what doesn't work. Um, so, uh, and, 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 you know, NaNoWriMo, we, I mean, part of the book, it is attached to NaNoWriMo in the sense that we, that's when we were developing more of our year round writing program. And so the book pep talks has 52, uh, essays, uh, meant, meant to be inspirational, um, on some level, but just, you know, the, the idea being that right year round, you know, we, I kept, when I first came to NaNoWriMo, I'd, I'd hear people who'd said, Hey, I, got, I had this amazing experience in November. I wrote this novel. I loved participating in the community and but what's next. Yeah. And so we built that here. And then I wanted to have uh, a book that would also support it. Um, so, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm working on another book right now of, of what are, I'm calling creative meditations. They're, they're kind of short, lyrical little essays uh, to read like one a day, essentially on different topics of creativity. And I love the challenge of like literally looking for 365 topics to write about. Yes. Um, and now, and now, you know, initially I was like, how do I get 365? And now I've got a bunch of surplus topics that I also love that won't fit into the book, but they've been a joy to write. I think that sense that you mentioned of finishing NaNoWriMo and what do we do now is something Christian can relate to. Because Story Forward is something I know you have really put a lot of effort into trying to make it last year round. Yep. Started this podcast based on right. your brilliant idea, or partly at least. <laughs> but we, yeah, we do things year round. And it is, but it's kind of the first few years, especially, is like, it feels weird. You have um, like PTSD afterwards because Giant Festival's gone on. And then it's like, oh, now what? But we've tried to maintain like our presence. So people won't forget about us, you know, yeah. around and it gets, you know, Boise's got a really great writing community and arts community and they've supported the things we've done. Um, and it's sort of sad. We're actually doing one right now at, at this Idaho Botanical Gardens, which is a big 17 acre botanical garden. And there's a great space there um, in their meditation garden that we're having a series actually that's limited to a certain number of people and, social distancing and all that stuff. But uh, we are doing that, but a lot of other things will probably not be happening through the fall and winter. But uh, Mm -hmm. anyway. Well, you know, one, one, sorry. 
Well, I was just going to say, this is like brainstorming story for it. I know that's not what I'm supposed to be doing here on the podcast. But I think one thing that's been interesting about the whole COVID stuff is the number of festivals that wouldn't or normally be hosting year-round programming, and they are. Like I'm thinking here straight up in the Bay Area, Litquake has been offering these fantastic author events virtually uh, that they normally wouldn't be doing. And the same thing goes for the Bay Area Book Festival. So they essentially started the year as um, date bound, you know, literary festivals, and they're, they're going to exit this year, probably with this whole different notion of themselves as an organization and as a festival, which I think is interesting. If there's, a, if there's a silver lining to all of this, I think it's not just literary festivals that are finding that they can expand what they do. I think everyone is. Mm-hmm. Every, the definition of everything is changing. Um, backing up a little bit, though, I wanted to kind of for both of you guys, I know Grant is our guest, but I think this applies to both of you. When your events end, is there like a seven-day period where everyone's just like sleeping? Or are you like CPAs on April 16th? What happens immediately afterward? I'll let Christian go first. Okay. Um, yes, we do. And uh, oftentimes our, our story for crew and others, we all, somebody else or one or more people are getting sick afterwards because you're just like, you know, you're exhausted, just staying up late because having the music component happening maybe is a little, uh, I'm sure NaNoWriMo has his own kind of exhaustion, but we will go out late, go to the bars, see some shows, stay out till two, um, then come get up at like eight, seven or eight in the morning and come back at it. So we were exhausted in a physical way, but just kind of after, after, months of planning, year-long planning, and all of a sudden it's over. Like I said, it's sort of like a, you feel a little bit empty and kind of gut it out, but in a good way every year. I've always felt like um, just happy, but also tired. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my answer for now. Yeah, I wish we had more of a break. Uh, we kind of can't go to sleep for that week. Um, I mean, all the after-event stuff, we have so much work to do before Christmas and the holidays. Uh, we closed down for a week at Christmas, but you know, right when we get back in January, that's when we're hosting our revision and publishing event. I wrote a novel, Now What? And so it kind of goes with the year-round programming that there's not much of a break. I, I always tell people that I get about five minutes to breathe a sigh of relief that we still exist and we can exist next year. And then that's it, five minutes, and it's right back into things. It's amazing because I do, from experience, know that in October, you're unreachable. October is actually, yeah, more my busiest month. More September so and October, yeah. more so than November. Yeah, it's kind of like you preparing for the party takes more time and effort than the party itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like Storyboard is not my full-time job at this point. It's to be a, it's set up. Um, it's just those five days and it's become a year-long thing. But I have other gigs that kind of kick back in teaching-wise or tutoring wise or when I was doing the restaurant work, you know, so that stuff kicks back in. So I don't have a whole week to just lay around for sure, but it's uh, yeah. So we take about two or three months off of doing anything like event wise in the past after Storyboard ends, but uh, and we kind of rev it back up. So (laughs) too bad because I got to say as a participant in both events, when you're done, it's just great. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Yeah. I think about that. I'm like, ah, that's, that's I can just go to the festival. I, you know, I go to NaNoWriMo. I'm not writing for the next week. It's going to be great. <laughs> when NaNoWriMo was smaller, there, there used to be more of that week's rest afterwards. And mm-hmm. we used to send out an email uh, at some point saying that we were going into hibernation for a while, you know? So I, that was before my time, but 
but yeah. yeah. To sort of piggyback off something you had said earlier about, about organizations finding different ways to define themselves because of COVID. I touched on it earlier that you host a lot of flash fiction reading events. What have you guys been doing uh, to keep yourselves in the public consciousness? And is anything going on with Litquake this year? You usually do something for Litquake, and I doubt there's going to be a Litquake this year. Uh, it's going to be virtual. virtual. Um, yeah, they've been doing all these events now kind of as a warm-up, I think, to the big event. So they're doing a lot of stuff virtually. Uh, so we're, we're not going to do anything at Liquid this year. We're going to do it next year, which will be our 10th year anniversary for hundred word story. Um, I've talked with Jane Chabatari who co-hosts the flash fiction collective readings with me. Uh, we've talked about doing something virtually for that as well. And we might, it's just that we've both been so busy. It's been hard to coordinate something, but we did do a flash fiction reading for Litquake um, back in, uh, I guess it was early April. Seems like ages ago, but, uh, how did you set that up? How did, it um, how did we set it up? Well, just how did it appear? Uh, I think actually they invited us to do, to set up a reading. And um, we, as we always do, we just reach out to people that we each kind of, you know, sometimes one of us might invite all the readers and sometimes we might just kind of pull together invitations. So it's always, I mean, it's really always by the seat of our pants to tell you the truth. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Did you do it like a, like a Zoom call? It was a Zoom call, yeah. So, you know, I, I find it interesting. I mean, I mean, again, this is all experimental. Like, like um, when you were saying that, you know, organizations and the whole virtual thing, everyone's going to kind of change. But, but I'm also interested in what the appetite will be for virtual events, uh, especially once people go back to more of a normal life. Um, like I, I personally stare at screens all day. And so yeah. I don't really want to do uh, much virtually, but I know that the virtual events are getting, I think really good turnout. So right now they're, they're doing really well. I mean, it depends on how comfortable we get sitting in our houses, I guess. Yeah. And, and how much better this, you know, I know that zoom and Google and Facebook, a bunch of companies, like they're pouring money into their video uh, capabilities. And so I think right now there's a big competition and a, a race to see who can do it the best. So I actually think like a year from now, we're going to be amazed by what you can do. Yeah. Right. And, and how many times have you thought, I'm going to go to that reading and the night shows, eh, I don't feel like going out. Exactly. Yeah. Just plug in, call a number yeah. and I'm at the reading. Yeah. It's nice. We, my wife and I started doing, uh, going to, attending some of the Litquake uh, literary events. Like we'd cook dinner and just put the laptop on the table and turn it on. And it was, it was a really nice way to, you know, kind of listen with half an ear, but attend. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Like some of the local, well, one of our local bookstores, Rediscovered Books, um, has been doing a number of events like that where you can actually interact too with the, with how, I think it was through Facebook Live um, and that worked pretty well too. So you kind of go into the room with them and you can ask some questions and things like that, you know? Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. It might even be easier to access the reader's in a video setup than an actual than at the actual event. Probably, you know, I mean, it's hard to access the readers in a real place if there's many people there, and yeah. you know, to actually get time for a question. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think that that uh, a lot of this is really fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to watch and see how it evolves. I like that. Fascinating. It's better than like heavy and <laughs> depressing. Yeah. Hey, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask you. So, your wife Heather 
Mm-hmm. And tell me if I'm mispronouncing it. Is it Mackie or McKay? Mackie. Mackie. Your wife, Helen Mackie, is also a writer. Yep. Um, a middle grade author. And beyond. Yeah, she's writing an, an adult mystery now. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about living in a house full of writers. And if that creates competition, or if it creates inspiration, or if it creates a little bit of both. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Heather and I have been together for decades now. (laughs) Uh, I guess, gosh, yeah, decades. And so we've probably gone through every single stage of, of that, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there are moments we were competitive, although I don't really remember them. Uh, I think generally we're pretty, I mean, the nice thing is, is that we're very supportive to each other, you know, in terms of writing time and the writing life in general. And I think, um, we, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone could really truly understand a writer's life unless you're a writer. So, so there's that part of it that's really nice. Um, at the, you know, back when we our kids were younger, uh, I think the, the the downside of it was is that we both wanted and needed more time to write, and and time was a scarcity, and so I think we would both get frustrated, um, and so that it's it's hard to divvy up time as you know co-parents to for writing time but we you know we did a reasonable job but there were some tough moments do you read each other's stuff you know i i hear about these couples who you know like i think i yell at waldman and michael yeah, they, Chabot and they they read they each other's other. yeah and i don't get that i mean first of all heather and i neither one of us had time mm-hmm. <laughs> to read each other's stuff i mean we will occasionally read each other's stuff but it's not like um it's not part of our process really it'll be more like asking the other for a favor Mm. and um you know and and i i I mean i don't think either of us actually seek much feedback from anybody so maybe that's part of it maybe if we are more feedback oriented from especially from earlier draft stages we would but um i actually think it it can be an unhealthy part of a relationship to ask for that too uh just like it can be an unhealthy part of a friendship or 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 to ask that of a family member sometimes they that's a big thing to ask somebody i guess but it is it is and and who are the the couple that we met christian up in moscow uh bob wrigley and And the wife yeah he was telling me about how he had he had edited her novels for her and i thought wow he edited it yeah Yeah, a lot of you know, there are some great stories in literary history, like um, Malcolm Lowry, who, I don't know if you've read Under the Volcano. It's basically one of my top five favorite novels. Um, it's, he, he was the single biggest drunk in literary history. Like he just, no he could drink Achiever under the table, but he wrote this majestic, amazing labyrinthian novel uh, based in Mexico. But what, what they found out, and, and a lot, I think a lot of these guys of his era he 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 wrote in the 30s 40s but um his wife who was given the role of typing the novel she did a lot of heavy editing oh and and so i think they were almost co-authors and i think you can you can probably go through literary history and pick out a lot of people whose wives were co-authors especially if the husband was a notorious drunk um scott and zelda things Probably, although I don't, I mean, Zelda wasn't, Zelda was a co-author probably in a different way. She was a co-dependent. <laughs> yeah, she, she contributed, I'm sure she, I'm, whatever, I'm sure she gets like co-author credit in some way. Like I'm thinking like Tolstoy's wife typed all of his novels as well. And I'm just curious how much of an editing hand she might have had. Um, It'd be hard to not edit. Yeah, you, you mentioned Bill Carver earlier and we were, he wasn't his wife, but his good friend, <laughs> Gordon Lish, uh, you know, he, he got oh. to be rewriting with a lot of Carver's work. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How much how, Gordon List needs a credit of some sort, right? Yeah. Um, if you re, if you read the before and after stories. Yeah. Crazy. But um, Larry, another oh, question. Sorry. No, I thought you were going to say something. I was going to say something. Question. Go for it. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, in just in the nanowrimo world, I don't know how many novels have been written in that oh, yeah. or that forum, I should say. But there's some. That, are, that we might know that have been published down the line. They're like, oh, bestsellers, or kind of, when you said some famous authors have popped in, have they published the stories, or the, rather the novels they've written during that time, or maybe some, some titles from NaNoWriMo that we might be able to find out there that you would recommend, or I don't know, maybe there aren't any. I'm sure there probably aren't. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot, and there are a lot that I don't even know about. Like, I'll randomly find out about an author, like just this morning, I had an author on my podcast and I, I had to ask her beforehand. I was like, hey, have you done NaNoWriMo? And she's like, yeah, I've done it four or five times, but I didn't, I didn't know that. She's a well-published author and that happens all the time. So it's only if they tell us or if, or if we happen to read an interview with them or something and they mention it and sometimes they don't mention it. Um, so Sarah Gruen wrote Water for Elephants and that was made into a movie. That might be one of the best, better known ones. Um, Aaron Morgenstern wrote Night Circus during NaNoWriMo. Uh, a lot of a lot of them are more um, the NaNoWriMo writers are more uh, YA or fantasy uh, or sci-fi. So Hugh Howey wrote um, The Wool during NaNoWriMo. Um, Marissa Meyer wrote um, or writes almost all of her books either during NaNoWriMo or she writes them with a NaNoWriMo kind of structure. So Cinder um, and her other books in, in Lunar Chronicles series. Uh, let me think. Rainbow Rowell wrote Fangirl in NaNoWriMo. Um, I mean, there's just so many. Uh, Elizabeth Acevedo, who wrote The Poet X, she didn't write The Poet X, which won the National Book Award, but she wrote her next novel during NaNoWriMo. Hmm. Um, Have you guys yeah. ever considered publishing? You know, people ask that all the time. And like to set up a publishing business is actually a pretty involved thing. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I have all sorts of dreams for NaNoWriMo. And one of those dreams would be to have a NaNoWriMo publishing imprint. Um, But we've got a staff of 10 and a budget of $1.3 million and not a lot of time. Um, So yeah, I need, on this podcast, I'll just do a call. I have a bunch of great ideas for NaNoWriMo. So if any rich persons out there and wants to kind of team up on doing some really exciting ventures. Like this is the thing about nonprofits. If we were a for-profit, I could drive down Silicon Valley. I could find out how to pitch people for venture funding. I could get a lot of venture funding and I could do really amazing things. But because we're a nonprofit, I cannot do that. And so there's a scarcity of resources or investment dollars. And does that itch ever get too hard to scratch? Uh, sometimes it gets frustrating, you know, just just in what our society values and how you define impact in the world. And the idea that we privilege uh, for-profit entities to create impact instead of nonprofits. So, you know, we are a business in the end and there's, there is a bunch of good things we could do in the world, uh, but we need funds to do them just like any other business. We need investment dollars and there's not really a way to get them. I mean, banks are much more likely to loan money to for-profits than non-profits, you know, so. Yeah, that's interesting because like Treefort and Storyfort attached to the Treefort or under the Treefort umbrella <clears throat> is not a non-profit. So the festival itself, so being a for-profit and we basically operate like a non-profit um, as far as yeah. Storyfort works, we can't get the funding from like, we can't apply for that many um, grants and whatnot and get some of the arts money that's out there just because 
we don't have a 501c3 official status, but we were actually working on kind of a cool way because it's a bit of a a little bit of a gambit we can take or figure that out where we can start getting that status. But uh, this is kind of interesting because on the back flip side of that for us, where I'm always like, ah, we could get, you know, a $50,000 grant possibly to be doing what we're doing, but we can't apply for it because we don't have that status. But anyway. That's the weird thing is like grants are essentially the equivalent of venture capital funding, except they're really minimal. They're really competitive and you're highly restricted in how you can use the money. So it's really not the way to build a business. Um, no. So you, you might be better off as a for-profit. Yeah, we'll find out in the long run. But uh, yeah, the, plus writing those grants is not that fun. But that's maybe not. some of my least favorite writing. Um, oh, yeah. That's horrible. <laughs> but uh, I was going to ask maybe a final thing. I know that we're approaching the NBA yeah. season. Um, we were oh, talking about. Are we approaching the NBA season? I don't know. <laughs> for me, I'm a Warriors fan. I know, but I think I, we've talked about what there's a lot of basketball involved in the Treeport Music Fest. Um, and we used to actually have there's a band out of uh, Portland that would set up a court and bands would play against each other. And so we brought it up with a few of our guests. And I know that Larry said you guys go to some Warriors games. Um, mm-hmm. What's 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 going to happen at the end of this, with this season that the Warriors are not going to be a part of? Are you going to watch? Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a I'm a I mean I'm such a fanatic NBA fan. I'll I'll desperately watch anything that's that's put out there. I I just think it's going to be such a weird thing to watch. Uh, I don't don't know what the games are going to be like, and and just the idea right now to me that we've we've we're congregating all these fantastic athletes in 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 one place where a bunch of them are likely going to get sick. And, and, and the whole idea might just blow up. They might not even be able to play these games or finish the season or, or they might be finishing the finals when the whole nation is like at its darkest moment, you know, like, and maybe that's good to have that entertainment. Cause yeah, I certainly I indulged in the Michael Jordan documentary, in, you know, in April. Yeah. But, uh, value to that. I don't see how they're going to pull it off in any sport. I really don't. I don't think so either. I think I, I just really fear for the NBA right now. I think uh, they maybe are the, the closest to pulling it off. Like I think baseball and, and football, like, yeah. I mean, I think right now golf is looking like a really good sport. You know, if you're a golf yeah. fan, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe tennis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sad for the NBA. I really miss it. I miss, I, I miss, uh, yeah, I uh, miss it in so many different ways. So, uh, but, but I do want to say if this is the last question, uh, just how well poised the Warriors are to dominate for another decade oh, or so. You said <laughs> right when Larry's going to become a, a Blazers fan. No, that's you, not going to happen. That will not happen. It will, Larry. Uh, you're going to slowly just the Blazers are just going to chip away at you slowly. Like I've already ordered some some Blazers gear for you to yeah, arrive. And I survived ten years in Seattle, a Warriors fan. I can survive Oregon as a as a Warriors oh, fan. Yeah. The Warriors sucked too. They did, but uh, yeah, I, I, there. But they were, we, yeah, I don't know. We had the Sonics during the the heyday for Larry and I when we first met. But uh, the Peyton um, Sean Kemp years, yeah, those but, were good years. Yes, were, yeah, really, even, even though Jordan doesn't recognize them as as, as true competitors. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we took him to six games one year in the finals, but that yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that it was, didn't make an impression. That <laughs> was that that ten part documentary really. I mean, it didn't 
it didn't tell me anything I didn't suspect about Michael Jordan, but geez, right. what a piece of work. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit chagrined that I wasn't included in the documentary. What's your brush with greatness? Should, should I tell you the story? Absolutely. Let's hear I, it. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm making the story more than it should be. I, I used to have heard it. Yeah. I, I, I worked in a hotel where I delivered room service to Michael Jordan <laughs> when he was like 20, before he was truly Michael Jordan. I think he was maybe a year or two out of the UNC. Um, so you I worked. The, you, you weren't the guy delivering the pizzas. I wasn't the pizza guy, but I did think about it because <laughs> you have a lot of power in that role. Um, so yeah, Michael yeah. Jordan. Yeah. I have a friend, a writer friend, um, who tells a story as you put it into one of his short stories, Ross, you remember Ross, Larry? I'm a big fan. Big fan of the Ross Hargreaves, but he met a guy who was claiming to be the guy who gave Michael Jordan the flu, you know, so we got basically like gave him some food poisoning the night before and he had the flu game or whatever. Um, so he has, yeah. A that's a pretty, yeah. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do, though, to intentionally give somebody food poisoning. I mean, you could kill them, right? Uh-huh. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that I entirely buy that story. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but that's his story about another guy who was telling the story at a bar um, and not super, like, super sober at the time. So <laughs> yeah. who knows? But anyway. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around to bars and tell people I was the guy who I, was, I mean, my brush with greatness. I'm responsible. In Utah, though, so that's a little closer to here. So maybe fierce. Those football, those basketball fans in Utah are fierce people. Yeah, yeah. we won't say why exactly. There's a few unsavory things that they've done. Otherwise, um, it might not be the moment to speak to that. But uh, exactly because we are out of time. So anything we say after this point, I'll will be uh, off record. Grant, thank you for coming on. I want to comment, though, before we leave, that what Zoom has shown me that you, Grant Faulkner, are one of the least fidgety people I've ever known. Is that right? You sound like a statue. I'm, I, on the other hand, am extremely fidgety, moving all over the place. Chris Wynn, you're somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of nodding and kind of moving around. And, but I'm all over the place, yeah. yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Grant. Um, <laughs> anything to promote before we let you go? Uh, this is live. You're not going to cut this off? No, keep keep the, yeah, yeah, we'll keep, keep, keep talking. Live. Okay, what to promote? Um, you know, uh, August. August, yeah. Um, you know, mainly just NaNoWriMo. People should sign up. They should write. You know, um, they should grow a big beard if they have beard growing capabilities. That's what I did the last four months, and I found it you know very creatively enhancing. Um, you so can good. you can bake bread and write novels at the same time. There's no reason you can't. And, and post fixed photos of your novel and your bread on Instagram if you want. Uh, how about spell out the NaNoWriMo website? NaNoWriMo.org. So that's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O.org. It's free. You got nothing to lose. So just, you know, sign up, jump in, write that novel of your dreams. Uh, you know, too many people wait too long in life to do the things they really want to do. That's you included, Larry. <laughs> Christian, Christian, you who've never signed up, this is your year. You got to do it. You're on the hook. I think it was in my contract when I agreed to appear here today. Okay. And, and, and then Larry, Larry, yeah, Larry owes me a published novel. Oh, I owe oh. several published novels. Um, hundred word story. Is it one zero zero word? Yep. Story? Yep. Um, 100 as in one zero zero wordstory.org and, okay. yeah 
Um, so yeah, that's been functioning almost for 10 years, as I mentioned. We publish stories every week. We have a photo prompt. If you don't want to submit a story to us, you can you can write to the monthly photo prompt and we pick oh, cool. out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, there's a whole little community that contributes stories. You just post them on the page. We, we put up a new photo every month and then we choose um, the story we like best and publish it. So it's been really nice. And you know, one thing I'll say for 100 Word Story is that we oftentimes get stories uh, written by people with MFAs and amazing publishing credits. And, and th those stories are not as good sometimes as like a 17 year old who from, from, you know, whose whose father poisoned Michael Jordan, who submits and, and, you know, which is all to say, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Like we, it's, we always take a lot of pleasure when we can publish somebody who doesn't have all the credentials. And it's amazing to me how many people who do have all the credentials still don't write like a great, Underwood story. It's not like it gives you an edge. So submit. Yes. <laughs> um, there you go. But we do count the words. So if there's 101 words or 99 words, these weird forms that exist out there on the internet, I don't know who would want to write a 101 word story. <laughs> we will not publish it. We'll ask for edits. It's just fiction 101, you know, just playing off the whole idea of like English 101, I guess, is how they started. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, are we off, are we off the record now? You're not quite off. I was just going to say thanks, too. And then I'll um, just see you here at Storyfort. At the fest. We will definitely see you at the fest um, one day. Cool. And yeah, you don't call it a festival, Larry Grant. I've been, I've been, so, my, it's I've, a fest. I've made many mistakes. Fest. Yes, so we're going to keep that yeah. in mind. But thanks a ton. Yeah. And I'll just, uh, you know, turn off the recording here in a sec. And then uh, awesome to meet you. Yeah, it was great talking with you guys. I love this. I, I didn't fidget just because you guys were such great conversationalists. Awesome. All right, then, everybody. That was our awesome, fun, entertaining episode with Grant Faulkner and Mr. Larry Rosen and myself. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk to Grant all about NaNoWriMo and his own writing and a little basketball, too. Oh, yes, and the 100-word story project that he heads up and founded. But, um, hey, we hope you're doing well. We want to say thanks to Eavesdrop. E-A-S-E-Drop.com is where you can find their stuff. We want to say thanks to everyone involved, Tree Ford Music Fest, all y'all who are very interested in wanting to know what's coming next for Tree Ford. But we're keeping the stories alive here, keeping the voices alive here. We want to say thanks so much to Up Is The, Down Is The for – providing our fine theme music and be safe, be well. And one day soon we shall see you at the fest. Take care. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.